We want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report Podcast with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech, and media. And today joining us is Suki Sani, previously head of communications for U.S. card and retail bank divisions at Capital One, and just settling in a brand new role as SVP, head of brand communications at Wells Fargo. Let's jump in and get to know Suki Sani. Suki, welcome. How are you? I am doing great. It's it's a Monday, fantastic evening, 97 degrees outside. Couldn't ask for a better summer day. So thank you for having me. So appreciate it. It's a chilly 97, right? <laughs> so <laughs> we're thrilled you're joining us and we'd love to help our audience understand a little bit more about you. So can you tell us, Suki, a little bit about your culture, your heritage and where you were born and raised? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's such a beautiful question. I'm so glad we're starting with that. I'll take you back a little bit into the journey. I grew up in India and I was born and raised in a family with with two brothers, mm. but also with a father who who really believed that girls should have the same choices and the same opportunities as boys do. And I think that's what led me once I was out of college, got into journalism, always found that words were so impactful um, mm. and the ability to tell stories was was really great. And then, you know, just wanted to take a break from everything and then come and study and get my master's degree. So my father at that time was very critical, sort of helping me find that path. And that's when I landed in 1999 in the U.S. as an immigrant, as a student, exploring new territories, very scared, but very excited (laughs) at the same time. So I I still get chills when I think that I, I came all the way down to a brand new country with no family and friends but was determined to make it my own. And as I reflect back on those 20 years that I've been here, it's every instance, every experience, every interaction has helped me to become the person that I am today. Obviously, um, married, have a beautiful family, have two young girls now. I've had the great opportunity to work for some very amazing people and companies and I've learned from them as well. But I wear my culture on my sleeve. I'm very proud of where I come from. I am very proud about sharing those stories because I do believe that when you share stories and when you talk about who you are with a lot of pride, it actually leads to an open conversation. And that's what truly leads you to a place where you just get to learn about everyone as well, too. So that's who I am. A proud Indian, became a U.S. citizen three years back, voted for the first time. A beautiful 20 years and so grateful for everybody opening up the door to me. But again, somebody just very proud of my heritage and my background. So, okay, that's that's tremendous. And there's so many things I want to ask you about. You touched on a few of them and that proud citizenship moment. I don't think a lot of people who are born with that, realize that journey. They don't realize that moment of celebration. They don't realize that commitment. They don't realize all of the steps to get to there. So we're going to circle back to that Mm -hmm. and talk a little bit about that. But I want to talk about something for a moment before we get to your great experience working for tremendous companies and even what you're doing today. But about that progressive sort of mindset from your family. To me, that's different. It sort of stands apart a little bit. And I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about what that sort of means and how that impacted you as a, from identity into who you are today to have a really progressive family to say that like, 
all the things that you can do are the same. And so talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's been fascinating. You know, my my father was in the foreign services and uh, to this day, we joke, we didn't really know what he did. So he took that <laughs> secret, secret with him to the grave. He taught us a couple of things as a family that hardships are part of life. You need mm. to celebrate that. And I think when no one's watching, that is a true test. He always shared that with us. Like everybody will celebrate you when you're successful but when no one's watching is the true test of your commitment. The other thing, and I think this is probably just cultural to growing up in India and very true to, I think you'd speak to a lot of Indians and their families, hard work. I mean, that's instilled in us from day one. There is absolutely no excuse for hard work. And you could be born with the silver spoon or you could be just from a very mediocre, low-grade family as well. But in India and the culture, there's like it's always focused on hard work and making sure that hard work will always pay back no matter what. I mean, I think the third thing was this focus on learning. Uh, my father always said, it's really, really important. Like education is something that's never going to go waste. So leverage that as an opportunity and not everybody gets access to that too. So I think he showed us a little bit of the world where he made us realize how fortunate we were to have what we could because there were a lot of people who were not fortunate enough. And I think it's still the same case there as well, too. And, you know, my mom had different views. She was mm. she's a homemaker. She has instilled a different level of confidence in me. But for her, it was about taking care of the family, getting married, settle down. And I still remember when I broke the news and saying, I'm going to go to the U.S. and get a master's degree in journalism. And she was like, no, 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 you're going to get married. And, and there was this like constant debate. And there was my dad on one side. And I have two brothers, you know, an older brother and a younger one. And I'm stuck in the middle. And as a middle child, I'm sure many will agree. <laughs> you don't get, you know, you sort of get caught in the, in, the, in the middle, right? You don't get the best of both worlds, too. So I think there's this constant push. And, and I would say one of my mantras that I've taken to heart is my dad always said, first deserve than desire. I do think the generation today, and I tell to my kids is, they just feel like they're entitled to everything, but you got to work your way towards that. Mm. So I would say hard work and being progressive in our thoughts from like, it doesn't matter if the gender, you got to work hard. And if you work hard, success is going to come no matter where you are and who you're with. That's amazing. First of all, your dad had the most amazing, amazing statements which is profound, you know? So I love it. I love it. And so did your mom too, you know, but it's amazing when, when we think about career. And I want to ask you about your career path. You're currently serving in a tremendous role at Capital One and you're an adjunct professor at Georgetown University mm -hmm. and you're a top woman in PR, a top 25 global innovator. Tell us how that career path started. Yeah, I was always had an entrepreneurial mindset and I, I love to share a story with you all. So I went to a boarding school in India and summer vacations were about three and a half months long. Mm. And I was always a big fan of comics. I mean, you can put any books in front of me, I'll never read them, but comics, love them. And at one time <laughs> when I was in sixth grade and I'm like, I need to make some money. And I started my own library with my neighbors. And I used to charge at that time, the Indian currency was like, it's called 25 pesa, which is like 25 cents. Mm. And I was like, I'm determined to just make money, figure out a new way to take that money and maybe open up like a, a bookshop, like a comic shop, et cetera, too. So I think that whole entrepreneurial spirit was always there. My older brother, my younger one, my sister-in-law, my entire family, they all are entrepreneurs. One's a you know, seasoned marketeer, started her own business. One's on the food side, one's into trading. So I think somewhere that risk-taking element was always mm. there. 
And that sort of brought me to the U.S. And from my you know, first role working at the university as a resident, uh, which was amazing. I mean, that's when 9-11 happened. And I still remember they came to me and said, you don't have to worry about anything. We are all here in solidarity with you when it should have been the mm-hmm. other way around, right? So having an open space, getting to know people one-on-one. And then from WVU, West Virginia University is where I got my master's. Then I moved to Washington, D.C., worked for the Carnegie Endowment. And I mm-hmm. always wanted to stay close to my roots in, in foreign policy and public affairs because I'm a global citizen at heart. Like you you cannot yeah. take the global element from me. Washington's um, the right place for that. Washington's the right place. I still tell people <laughs> it's only football in the U.S. It's soccer worldwide, right? So, right. so we joke about that. But Carnegie was great because it allowed me to really focus on research. And then, you know, the for-profit world happened. Nextel Communications, I don't know if you've heard of that. That was the most innovative company when it came to telecom. And I got the opportunity to work with them. Tremendous. Um, Till the state, Eric, I still maintain those relationships. I mean, oh, awesome. I think if I could go back and if they could recreate the culture of their organization, it was tremendous. And then from there, I went to Sprint and then at Capital One. I have grown at Capital One. I have learned about financial services. I've learned about the impact of money. And not just because I worked there, but you almost realize and say, it was a great decision that I made that I didn't take a student loan. And I was lucky enough to actually have the university pay for that. And I had a scholarship because it reintroduces your relationship with money. And money is important to everyone. You can have a lot of it and you still have issues with it. You can have none. And there's still issues with that as well. So I think we at Capital One are in such a unique place to to really create a relationship with our customers and, and talk through that. And again, you know, my hope is that a younger Suki who's watching me, who's making that journey from India or anywhere in the world to look for brighter pastures and better experiences, one day looks at my career path and says, you know, I can do different things. I can find people who will support me. And, you know, you can certainly break break that last ceiling one day. And I hope that my continued journey in the near future allows me to do that as well, too. But I am nothing but grateful for the people who've had faith in me. And like I said, what we're doing at Capital One is, is a big part of who I am today. I love what you said there, because that's the reason why Eric and I do this podcast is so that we can have people share their stories. And so those that are coming up can see people that look like them be inspired and blaze their own trail. So really appreciate you sharing that, Suki. I do have to ask you, though, do you have a favorite comic book? (laughs) So it's funny. Yes. Archie's is my all-time favorite. Absolutely amazing. Jughead is my favorite character. I mean, talk about, <laughs> talk about somebody who's so oblivious uh, to life, but at the same time, it's, it's so funny. But grew up watching and reading that. And then, of course, there are many Indian comic books that I that I grew up with. For folks who are listening and can relate, I think Raman is one and Pinky was another one that I grew up. And Chacha Chaudhary, who was basically the super smart guy. Chacha in Hindi means uh, uncle and Archie Comics. So I just got my girls to start reading it. So we'll see how nice. far they go. All right. All right. Going back to to business a little bit, what do you love about being in corporate communications? I think it's um, it's the ability to tell stories, but stories with a purpose. Communications is such a beautiful industry and the function of communications. It brings people together. At Capital One, we talk a lot about how we are truth seekers, but also truth tellers. Right, We have the ability to actually get people in a room to really rethink their strategy. It could be tied to product. It could be tied to how you talk about your brand. It could be how you speak to your own employees. Communications plays such an integral role in there as well. So I think 
connecting the dots. I mean, you could not meet a communicator who would not know what's happening across the company. That's just mm-hmm. what we do. We are natural dot connectors. And again, just finding the opportunities to push the lever. Yeah, I think it's shifted even more since COVID. The desire to be empathetic, the desire to be transparent, the desire to be real. But that's what I absolutely love about it. But telling stories but doing it with a purpose and to showcase impact. And, and again, if you can use data to drive those stories, I, I think it's, it's a perfect combination to really deliver results. Right, right. And you mentioned COVID and obviously the last 15, 16 months have been unlike any other stretch of time for probably any of us in our life. And COVID, racial issues, more companies talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I always feel that marketing and and communications within an organization sits right at the heart of those things and and can really have a a positive impact and influence internally as well as externally. Can you talk a little bit about how that's all played into your day-to-day as well? Yeah, it has. And I think I've uncovered a lot about myself too in the last 18 months. We've had some very tough conversations both at work, but both outside of work as well too. And at Capital One, for example, we talk a lot about diversity inclusion, but we also talk about belonging. Uh You can hire diverse talent. You can make it the most inclusive environment. But if there's no sense of belonging for you as an individual, I think that's where you fail. And that's where the true opportunity for is, right? Because that's where the human connections are made. So it's been a huge part of the work that I do. And again, oftentimes, you know, it's tied to to policy, right? You, you can't bring real change if you don't have the lawmakers. So we all have to come together. I oftentimes, when I'm listening to different conversations or I'm reading something and they say, this is your work or, oh, your job is to do diversity and make sure we're hiring diverse talent. I think it's all of us, right? We all yeah. have a role to play. Organizations that are, you know, consumer-focused companies, nonprofits, policymakers, government officials, we all have to do it together because it's systemic and you almost have to change that. For me personally, I think it just really shifted and made me rethink where my voice can actually help lend in that, whether as an ally, whether as somebody who has their own experiences to share, but just almost opening up the door and just being open, empathetic and transparent. And from a communications perspective, I think it's been really critical for us to make sure that we are prepping the voices that are telling these stories on behalf of those brands feel really good about it and feel like it's authentic. I think authenticity around this is going to be more critical and just being transparent about how you feel. You don't have to have all the answers. It's okay to say that we didn't focus on it, but we will now because that's how real change comes. And I think the role that we are going to play as communicators is going to be even more critical in the coming days. But It's very important. It should be important. It's no longer a side of the desk job for any one of us. And I think it should be a way of life. Just like how for any business to showcase ROI is a way of life, diversity should be in everything that you do. And the feeling of belonging should be from the very interaction to the very last interaction that you have with your customers. Yeah, that's great. I want to ask you, Suki, a little bit about your journey and your path as a multicultural woman, mm-hmm. you know, rising in the workplace. I want to talk a little bit about your experiences there. So first and foremost, as, as a multicultural woman rising in the workplace, there's probably been moments of discrimination that you've felt, right? Can you talk yeah, a little bit about yeah. some of those that are 
that are very direct and, and some are can be microaggressions, some can be very direct and much larger. Tell us a little bit about that because that's fair. Yeah, I, I have to share with you that the most direct was actually when I joined a master's program at West Virginia and I was the only person of color. I mean, again, mm-hmm. this was way back in 2000. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to do a project with me. Can we set the stage real quick? Because like you said, it's 2000, 2000. in West Virginia, WVU. Yes. That's not the same as being on, you know, K Street or Northwest or in D.C. Exactly. Or in Columbia University. No, it was in there and they were amazing. And then we had to pick our groups. And here I was standing on the side and basically the students in the room said, we don't know if we can work with her. We don't even know if she speaks English. And then, of course, I start Mm -hmm. talking. And I remember my professor at that time, right? You you remember people who stand by you. And and you know what she said? She can do this even better than in a group. She's going to do this by herself and Mm -hmm. come out victoriously. And for me, that meant a lot. But it also meant that here I was feeling super successful about a really good career back in India. I was a journalist. I felt like I knew it all. But for me, from that day, I had to press reset and almost push myself to create a brand new identity and make sure I could use it as an opportunity. I was very angry at that point. But I think over the years, I've used the anger to find opportunities where I can educate others because I firmly believe that it it really comes from a place of either you just ignore certain things because it just Mm -hmm. makes you uncomfortable or you're just not willing to learn. And I think if I'm going to put myself out there through these stories and say, share these stories, right? Talk about it. I often get with my name, um, you know, they say, oh, we thought you're you're Japanese. Where are you originally from? And then it goes into like, oh, well, I am in DC. No, no, no. Where where are you originally from? I said, well, I grew up in India. Is that what you're trying to get to? So (laughs) I think those are the microaggressions. The one that comes a lot, and I think if it happens once, it's okay, but it's happened to me so many times and I have given that feedback. First, ask the person the pronunciation of your name and do not spell that and then find an excuse. Secondly, you know, there are a lot of folks from India. Indian names are usually really long. And I still remember many instances where I was brought to people's table and said, hey, Suki, would you mind coming here? Could you, could you pronounce this? And I'm like, really? You could just go to Google and put the name in and it'll tell you how to pronounce that. But take an effort, make an effort because you're not going to learn. But they continue to lean on me. And I think that's where it started with one instant, which you're going to grow. But that was a microaggression I, I still face to date. Thank you so much for your courage and, and talking about that. Sometimes those things aren't easy to talk about, mm-hmm. but they're very real, right? Yes. And they're very real. I want to ask you about a couple more things. And I love that you've been public and you've talked about this. And, you know, you said, never sell yourself short. You said your background, your ethnicity, your experiences are your own. And that is what differentiates you from everyone else. Always have faith in yourself. Because if you don't, no one else will. You don't have to be perfect in everything you do. But don't let your imperfections shadow your true self. I love it. Can you tell us a little bit about what that feels like in 2021 for Suki versus the Suki from a different time, right? And yes. t- tell us about those words and how that feels today. I think, Eric, it's, it's come with experience. It's come with realizing that you can't change everything and you can't control everything either. So I think I had to do a lot of assessment in understanding who I am, where do I come from? Uh, what is it that truly differentiates me from everybody else around me? And how can I actually start using that as an asset 
versus mm-hmm. a liability. I think there are there are people who were my biggest champions, my mentors, my sponsors who helped me get to that. I mean, I think I would be lying if I said I just had this revelation one day. No, it's it's through the lens of these people. I still remember one of my former colleagues and I was telling her, I said, I've got this great opportunity to be on a panel, but do you think, you know, you start self-doubting yourself if you're the right person. Yeah. And she said, don't do it for yourself. Do it for that Suki who's watching you in the audience. And then she gets inspired to be yeah. in the same seat where you are today. That has stuck with me. And I think that was the the changing element. And I, again, like many folks along the way have have pushed me in the right direction, but it's hard. Um, it's hard. And I would say the last year has been harder because, you know, I had my stories to tell, but then you realize there are so many other stories out there and how can you actually truly be an ally? So this whole constant battle of being an ally and, and truly having to support that with real outcomes, because we can do all the talk. Mm. Um, if you're not going to help move the needle, we're going to be in the same space 20, 30, 10 years from now. And you and I could be having the same conversation. I hope it's not. Right. Um, I think we're at a turning point, but there's a lot of work ahead of us. But, you know, Suki, one more question about that. You know, you've talked about how you personally felt about taking risk and not doing it. You know, like if there, if there was a way for you to talk to a younger Suki, it would be about how to take more risk. And, and what held you back there was visa status. Oh, yeah. Right. Yep. Can you talk to us a little bit about your reflections now with a different visa status and what that means to, you know, thousands of others that may feel that taking more risk or their visa status holds them back. What's your personal sort of feeling and experience around that? You mentioned I teach at Georgetown. I also do a lot of mentorship with students, especially um, students at Rutgers, international students. I think two things have changed, Eric. One, I think the students are far more informed Mm-hmm. Uh, because these are global issues. I think social yeah. media has brought us together in a new way, which was not there when I came in 1999. I didn't even have a cell phone then. So I think, I think, I think students are a lot more aware. They're a lot more confident in what they want. It'll be surprising to hear many students. They say, we're just here for education because our country, which is India for many of them, mm-hmm. offers better opportunities for us. And we want to stay close to family. So I think I love the fact that they are so well aware of what they want in life and why they are in the U.S. and what that means. So I think the definition of that dream has shifted a little bit for many of these students as well, too. But I think that's where you sort of have to to lean in. And visa is something I can't control. These are guidelines. I think so what I can do is share these stories. And now that I'm a citizen, I want to get more active at the grassroots. I really want to understand where is policy developed. And I think we as citizens of the United States of America have the ability to sit down with lawmakers. And I don't think you can sit in your in your living room and talk bad about everybody who's out there, but not make an effort to get outside the door and actually make a difference. So you need to be in the community. You need to have those conversations. You need to be in the right networks. And that's the only way you can make impact. Um, and I think that's where the real opportunity for me lies ahead in continuation of my work on the corporate side, but as I continue to be a, a really good citizen within my own community as well. And and Suki, I want to ask you about work-life balance, right? Because again, the last 15, 16 months, unlike any other, and especially for women that have careers, but then also have kids at home and managing all of that. How have you been able to navigate the last 16 months? Yeah, it's been tough. I'll share with you two stories that showed where I was at the breaking point. 
I'm a people person. I love being in the office, but you know, um, we actually took the last flight out of India when the borders were shut between India and all international. We were there for my niece's wedding. So we really felt going through COVID and how big it was and not realizing the impact of what that would mean for the upcoming months. So having lived through that 18 hour flight to come back home and so glad we could Mm -hmm. do it. I think a couple of things. One, this is where everybody had to step up. So so my husband and I and our and our daughters who were one of them struggled with being fully virtual. One of them actually thrived being fully virtual. And I think what I look back now is I cherish the small moments that we had. We've never had lunch together since they were born. Because either I was wow. traveling or the kids were in school, right? And my job is such that you're 24-7. So I really appreciated we could get those 15 minutes to to prepare lunch and at least just catch up on the day. It was nice to just give a fist bump or give a hug um, yeah. to the kids as well, or just take a walk. You know, I, I changed a lot of my 1010s with my directs to walk and talk. We actually decided not to come on Zoom anymore. And we would just go outside, take a walk and, and really soak in obviously the nature, but it gives you a mental break, which is really, really needed. And, you know, there was this one moment when I was on a call with about 60 people from my own team. And my daughter kept pressing, you know, kids know when to ask that question, oh, could I have that extra candy? Like they know you're on the phone. They know when to come right in. I didn't realize that I had not muted myself. Mm-hmm. And I screamed at, right? It was one of those very embarrassing yet real moments. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, I did not use any profane words, but <laughs> I was not myself. And to show up as a leader in that vulnerable moment, I think taught a lot to me saying, this is the real me. Like there's a persona of a leader that's created, but that actually created much deeper relationships for myself. I would say my, my biggest mantra in life through the last 18 months, but in general is family always comes first. I think you have to love what you do. And it's great to love the people that you work with, the companies that you work for, but family always comes first. And what I've learned in the last 18 months is your mental health is very, very important, mm. as well as your physical health. Because mm. in, I have to say this in Hindi for all of you, but there's a quote saying, Jan hai to Jahan hai, which means Jan means life and Jahan means the world. If you don't have a healthy life, the world's not going to be there for you, right? So I think it's it's really retaught me how to take care of myself, both mentally and physically. I love that because uh, you, you can't do anything else without your health, your physical mm-hmm. and your mental health, especially as as a leader, right? Whether it be at work or at home, you can't help others. You can't take care of others unless you're taking care of yourself. So really, really appreciate you saying that. Really, really do. Where do you draw inspiration from? I mean, great conversation we had, fantastic career, everything that you're doing. Where do you draw inspiration from? Um, uh I draw inspiration from the most mundane things. I don't have a magic bullet. I'll share with all of you. I don't read books. I I just can't get myself to read a lot of, you know, long form content, but I I do a lot of leadership articles. I listen Mm -hmm. a lot to podcasts. I am a big people watcher. You could make me sit in a corner where it's crowded and I will just sit and observe. And that's where I get my cues from. Um, Mm -hmm. I get my cues very similarly to in meetings. I will not be the one speaking, but I'll just be observing. And I think that has helped me a lot in just understanding how to not only navigate the corporate structure, but how to understand people and understand and taking a moment and and, and seeking like where they're coming from and why are they focused on point A or point B. And that's both at work and outside. But I just take inspiration from wherever I can. And I think the one reason with that is 
oftentimes we overthink everything. I'm not an overthinker. I believe in you need to live every day as day one, right? Like you need to start your day that way, live in the moment. Don't worry about what's happened in the past and don't worry too much about the future because time will pass and you realize you didn't even live in that moment as well. So keeping an open mindset is really critical. Positivity is key for me. I'm very positive. I wasn't always positive. That's where my husband has really leaned in and he's helped me to think that way. And I always have a keen eye for learning. So I think just observing from the people around me, observing from interactions is where I get my inspiration from on a daily basis. So this conversation is inspiring. It's going to make me rethink and, and redo things maybe differently in the next year or two. And, and I think that would be that inspirational moment for me in today. And then I use that in what's to come tomorrow. Love it. Love it. Love it. Fun question that I love asking everyone that we have on the podcast, which is to give us the top three apps that you use on your phone, but you can't name email, calendar, or text messaging. <laughs> That's where your life lives, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> LinkedIn. I, I love LinkedIn. I'm super active there. That's where I usually post. Love Instagram. Big, big believer in traveling and seeing the world through the lens of different cultures. So Instagram is where it inspired me to go do that. And I think the third one, which is pretty recent, we just as a family have been training. We just did our first half marathon training for a second. It's called Final Surge. Talk about competing with your own selves. Everything is black and white there. It tells you exactly what your heart rate was, exactly how much you burned, and where do you totally <laughs> suck as a runner. So I think it's uh, those three would be my top favorite right now. Great. Suki, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us. And I want to take a moment to sort of reflect on all the great things you shared with us. You know, you talked to us about really sort of wearing your culture on your sleeve. And to me, that's pride is pride, right? You know, and that's, that's yep. tremendous, you know, and I want to also share some of the profound things that your family has shared with you and, you know, hardships being part of life, first deserving and then desiring, you know, and and that sort of when no one's watching is, you know, really a test of who you are and your commitment and what you want to do. I think you also touched on some really important parts around sort of belonging in DNI that are maybe sort of ways that people can connect to as well, you know, and there's a real important one too, which is healthy life or the world won't be there for you. Yeah. Right. And also yeah. remember who stands with you. Remember yeah. who helps you and who stands with you. Because I think that's something that everyone can be a part of. Oh, so yeah. thank you okay. so much, Suki Sani, for spending time with us. For all of our audience who's listening, thank you so much. And you can find more episodes available where you find all of your audio to search Minority Report Podcasts and look for the logo. Thank you again. Thank you.